all the planets in the galaxy. They chose ours. They hide in small places. This phone is dead. What? They like the dark. Jay, any luck? Just a minute. There's nothing cute about them. They've come a long way, and they're hungry. Hello, and welcome to part two of March Monster Madness, where I look at four, yes folks, four Critters movies in one mega podcast. Now, what can I say about these Critters movies? But these were blatant rip-offs of the Gremlins movies. In fact, this was New Line's take on the Gremlins franchise. I should start with the cast, starring D. Wallace Stone, Billy Green Bush, M. Emmett Walsh, Scott Grimes, Don Keith Opper, Billy Zane, Ethan Phillips and Lynn Shea, directed by Stephen Herrick. Quick prot, a bunch of furry little aliens attack a small farm and can they be stopped before they're on the menu. This movie opens up with the same New Line cinema logo as it was in Nightmare on Street Part 1, so I guess this was before the house that Freddy built. Then it shows a shot in space of an asteroid prison that looks straight out of Space 1989, more a enemy. There's a radio communication from the jail to the prison ship about having 10 prisoners, not 8. Then it's explained that they had to kill 2 just to make the food source last. Then it shows an alien riding a hover chair that looks straight out of Star Wars and he's told the Krites, as they're called, escaped using one of their fastest ships killing 2 injuring 3. So the warden calls two bound hunters dressed like the railroad from Fallout 4 and it's off to Earth where we see a shot straight out of invaders from space and other stock footage of farm shots. We meet the Brown family, Helen, the mother, played by Scream Queen D. Wallace Stone, April, played by Nadine Vandervelt, Brad, played by E.R. Scott Grimes and Jay, the father, played by Billy Green Bush. We found out very quickly that April is a bit of a slut and Brad is the typical 80s boys guy Kent. It's typical 80s movie hijinks as Brad tries to get out of having to go to school by putting the thermometer under the hot water tap, trying to pass the 106 degrees as his illness until his sister rats him out about having a big test. And then it's off to the police station where we meet Sally, or Sal, played by Lin Shea. Bob Shea's little sister, and was the head of New Line Cinema at the time. So Sal is the local busybody and Sheriff Radio Operator. Which brings me to Sheriff Marv, played by M. Emmett Walsh. This is where we meet local Howl at the Moon Nutter, Charlie, played by Don Keith Opper, who would later star at all four movies. So Charlie was once supposed to be a big shot baseball player, but something went awry and now he's the town drunk and lunatic, talking about receiving signals via his feelings about the aliens that are coming soon. Via the radio, we are introduced to Deputy Jeff, played by Star Trek's Ethan Phillips. So to space, where the bounty hunters are told by the not Yoda lookalike that the crates are heading to Earth and the faceless bounty hunters can find all the information on the planet in their ship's data banks. The aliens fast forward through most of Earth's history 
until they come across some cheesy 80s hair metal wannabe Johnny Steele, played by Terence Mann, doing his best Bon Jovi. As one of the faceless bounty hunter morphs into Johnny Steele in some great reverse melting effects, which are very 80s and was everything in the 80s and was in everywhere in the 80s, including a Fright Night. The original Fright Night, not the terrible remake. Cut back to the farm and we see Brad and Charlie hanging out with Charlie bang on about aliens as Brad blows up a toy UFO, getting herself and Charlie in trouble from the father. Just as Steve Elliott, played by Billy Zane, the first in a very long line of April's boyfriends, pulls up in his Corvette with vanity plates, two grade, and I don't give a shit what your other car is on it. Very much a charmer this guy is. So, after Charlie hits April in the ass for a slingshot, and Brad takes a fall for it, he sent to his room with no supper. And what a room it is. It is littered with 80s movie references, such as the fake alien poster, Mutant, and a huge gigantic plastic fly stuck to the wall. Brad plays the fake 80s hair metal song, Power of the Night, sung by Terence Mann for this very movie. It's later that night, and the family are sitting down to a wholesome dinner as April feels up Steve under the table and run off for a quote-unquote drive. I just noticed that the dad is using a jam jar as a glass well before the hipsters jumped on that trend, so in-your-face hipsters. Cut to Brand making pipe bombs in his bedroom using gunpowder from shotgun shells as he spies on April and Steve going for their quote ride. April drives Steve to the old bar and takes him in for a quote unquote ride. Brad's dad comes up with a plate of food for Brad and takes away his slingshot. Gee, I wonder if this will be used later on in a movie. Mm. As April has her way with Steve in the bar, back in space, and the critters buzz Charlie as he sees this thing the UFO in the sky and runs off to notify the townsfolk. Cut to Brad's mum watching TV and it's the song playing again. Power of the Night. Yes, we get it. This is supposed to be your anthem, but it's lame. Give it a fucking rest. After 26 minutes, we finally see the critters. Well, the UFO anyway, as Brad and his dad come across a dead cow, half eaten by the critters. So the dad goes to get his gun, in typical American style. It's half an hour in, and we see our first critter, as Deputy Jeff almost runs one over, causing him to ditch his car, and he takes a stinger to the knee, and eaten alive under his car. Critters then make their way to the farm, spooking Brad's mum and the cat Chewy in yet another 80s movie reference. Later that night, the bounty hunters land and they find the carcass of the cows. As the critters stalk the Brown family, by first killing the phone lines and then killing the lights, the dad investigates the cellar and we finally, finally folks, get a good look at the critters, or crates, and it looks like a mogwai has had sex with a Furby, only much more truthier. The dad gets bitten twice and gets a stinger in the ass. Cut to the bounty hunters tracking down the crates and they come across the deputy's car. So the second bounty hunter morphs into Ethan Phillips, but this time no cool melting effects. Guess the budget couldn't stretch that far then. So they steal the car and it's back to the brown farm where we find the father is in really bad shape after taking multiple stingers and multiple bites as he complains he can barely feel anything from the poison from the stingers. So of course smart ass Brad is playing with the stinger. I really hated wise-ass kids in 80s and 90s movies, and Brad is hands down one of the worst. See, I blame 
Ferris Bueller for this trend of smart arse kids. I mean, yeah, give it a rest already. So as we're saying, so this little smart arse is playing with a poisonous stinger from an alien. So Charlie barges into the shit's office and tries to get Sal to call Marv. But she thinks he's been on the sauce again. So she sends him off to find a sheriff at the bowling alley. Cut to a church meeting which is interrupted by the bounty hunters, and the second bounty hunter morphs into the priest, played by Jeremy Lawrence. So the two of them, so he shoots up the place, using guns straight out of Red Dwarf, and leave. What a totally useless filler bit this was. No reason for this just filler. Back at the brown farm, the father decides to take action by loading up his shotgun. What is it with Americans and double barrel shotguns? You only get two shots, and then you have to reload it. What was the wrong with the Winchester pizza? He had slightly above the fireplace also. That's had, what, eight, nine shorter. So the family leave the house and finds a pickup truck has been destroyed. So they try to use Steve's car, however, that's also destroyed by a crate as it eats the steering wheel. The father hunts down, shoots the one that was in the car, and the others come out of the shadows. So the family run back to the house. However, they're locked out by one small bathroom door snib or lock. Like these things aren't super easy to break down. <clears throat> and the father gets attacked again. So Dee Wallace uses a double shotgun to blow away a crate. As Brad runs off to be the hero. Is it wrong? I wanted his little brat dead. <clears throat> Leaving Dee Wallace to fumble with the empty two-shot gun. Because the clue is in the name, love, it's a double barrel shotgun. Brad gets the door open just in time as Dee Wallace blows away one of the crates. Cut to the bowling alley and a close-up of the bowling team's logo. And yet another 80s movie reference. It's the Ghostbusters logo in the style of Pin Busters. Yes, that's very nice little 80s homage there. I forgot to mention this earlier, but since the movie's doing it now, I'm going to do it right now. Anyway, moving on. We find Charlie sitting at the bar, knocking back whiskey, banging on about the aliens and needing to find Marv. Then why didn't you try to find Marv instead of going to the bar, you fucking lush? So the hunters make their way to the bowling alley for no reason at all, and they get sideways glances from everyone. So one of them tosses a ball down the lane, and of course it gets a strike. Then they start a bar brawl, as the second bounty hunter morphs into Charlie. They shoot the place up and then they just leave. Pointless scene number two. Finally, the sheriff gets called and spot another 80s movie reference as Marv has a picture of Dolly Parton from 9 to 5 on his wall and he is told about the carnage. Back to the farm and uh, Brad's dad is looking worse for wear with both, both hands now bitten and having multiple bite marks all over his body after taking multiple stingers. The crates break in and Dee Wallace gets it in the neck from a stinger. So the family run off upstairs and Brad plays the hero again. Just killed this little brat already. He gets a shotgun and shoots it, wasting a bullet, the final bullet in the gun that is, and brings in a ceiling fan, killing a crate. He gets hunted down by two more crates and the stupid little idiot throws a lantern at one of them setting the house alight, but is quickly put out by April. Yeah, because this thing is a paraffin or gas lantern, the old style one, and she just stands on it once and it miraculously goes out. Yes. Hmm. Anyway, cut to the sheriff investigating the church and Sal radio 
radioing him about the bowling alley again another useless cop in an 80s horror movie. Back to the farm and we see both his parents have taken out and Brad plays a hero again because of course the little smart horse preteen boy would be the hero. What's wrong with the slutty little sister or older sister? <clears throat> Sex as much. So the dad offers him the shotgun because of course you would give a preteen a shotgun. But he says no as it would weigh him down and he runs off leaving his half-dead dad and his knocked-out mum in the hands of mopey, lazy bitch April's hands. So Brad runs off to get his bike and gets chased by a huge crate, almost as big as him. So he runs off and hides in a bar where he sees it mutate again. Cut to the family and the dad shows every teen and kid how to make a flamethrower out of an aerosol can and a lighter. The Crates trash Brad's room and spot the AT doll on the bedside table as a crate bites its head off. The large crate is now the size of the house as it walks past the window. Cut to Brad blagging down the hunters and some useless banter between Brad and the hunters. Meanwhile, back at the farm and a huge crate is attacking the sister while the puppeteer cops a field and the father roasts its arms using the homemade flamethrower. The mum finally comes to and blows away a crate, then wastes another bullet as she has to resort to using that as a baseball bat. Just as the hunters blow up her door, and the little idiot Brad runs off into the house to find his pet cat Chewy. Sod the cat, get another fecking cat. As the sheriff bundles the family into his squad car and investigates the house. While surveying the house, with Bon Jovi looking like, Brad wanders off looking for his cat and gets attacked by the huge crate. But wait, wasn't the size of the house, it's now the size of Brad. Hmm. So the Bon Jovi lookalike shoots it and misses. So it runs off to get shot by the sheriff, who misses multiple times also. It kidnaps the useless whore sister. So Brad bikes off to save her unarmed, alone. Typical 80s kid style there. Closely followed by the hunters and co. As Brad follows the giant crate and April, he gets sideswiped by Charlie and the two find the critter's UFO. So he goes in to find his sister, blows the UFO sky high after dropping his pipe bomb and Charlie throwing in a Molotov cocktail, lighting the fuse and blowing it up. But not before the crates blow the house up as the UFO goes up in flames. If the crate's dead and the house blown up, Bonjo will look like gives Brad a communication device and walks off with Charlie bugging them about wanting to join them. Cut to the morning and the family look over the blown up house as Brad's device bleeps and rebuilds the house in some cheesy 80s reverse effects. The hunter's UFO buzzes the home and flies off into space but oh no the camera pans to the chicken coop and we see three eggs as credits roll. So that was Critters, I want to be gremlins with some cheesy effects and some bad 80s acting. I'm going to give this one 5 out of 10. Up next, Critters 2, the second course. Two years after the success of Critters comes Critters 2, the second course. If I thought Critters was a gremlins ripoff, boy was I wrong. The first one had scares and jokes, but this one is just joke after joke after joke after lame ass joke. Anyway, on with the show. Starring, once again, Scott Grimes, Don Keith Opper, Terence Mann, Cynthia Garris, 
and Lin Shi, directed by Mick Garris. The movie opens on what looks like a poor man's Dagobah. This looks like what would happen to the swamp once Yoda died. Spoilers for Star Wars there. We see the bounty hunters are back at work, except something is wrong. One of them is spooked and runs off to be later attacked by a giant rubber cockroach. So the other bounty hunter kills it and we are reintroduced to Ugg, played by Tenet's man and Charlie, played once again by Don Keith Ober. They take their bounty aboard their ship and we see another faceless alien is piloting the craft. By the way, I meant to say the hunters are now dressed like Spaceballs cosplayers and the guns are even more straight out of Red Dwarf. It's off into space and Charlie is tagging the kill in a bad predator reference. They get a call from the bastard love child of E.T. and Mac from Mac and Me. Look it up folks, look it up. Telling them the crates are still on Earth and they won't be paid until they're all killed. Cut to Earth and the now teenage Brad, played again by Scott Grimes, is on a bus driving back to see his grandmother in Grover's Bend, with the bus driver telling him and us the backstory of the previous movie. We then cut to a completely different farm from the original movie and we meet the scavengers and a whole bunch of great eggs even though at the end of part one there was only three so the older scavenger buys them for a crate of beer we are then shown the town square a completely different town from the original in fact is it this the same town as in Ghost Whisper? Why, yes it is. And they're prepping for the Easter egg hunt that Sunday. Then we meet Megan, played by Liana Curtis, or at least her arse first. Guess she's the April of this movie then. Hmm. So she goes into her daddy's newspaper office, and we are reintroduced to Sal, except this time she's a newspaper reporter. Guess she was fired from the shed's office when the town moved to Ghost Whisper Town. This is when I noticed Lynn Shea looks like she was supposed to look like an insidious too. Not that terrible lookalike that they had for her. We also introduced to Megan's dad, played by Sam Anderson, who argues about the paper's layout with Sal and Sal spot Brad's coming off the bus. However, Mr. Morgan tells her there's no story there and just leave it. Cut to Brad going to his grandma's house and we meet Nana Brown, played by Aretta Ware, who I knew from Cocoon when I saw this back in the 80s. It's back to the scrappers and we meet Quigley, played by Douglas Rove, whose dog scares Wesley, played by Tom Hodges. This is where I notice continuity isn't this editor's thing, as Wesley's jeep is covered in gunk from something that happens much later in the movie. Cut to Sal pulling up outside Sheriff Marv's trailer, played by a completely different actor this time, and he's played by Barry Corbin. Anyway, Sal tells him that Brad Brown is back in town. Maybe he would want to talk to him about the critters, but he's having none of it and tells her to go. Back to the scrappers and we see Quigley's shop is a junk shop straight out of Friday the 13th, the series. And Quigley doesn't have any brand name beer, just beer beer. Oh, I love 80s movies and beer beer. Or am I missing something? And was there a brand of beer called beer? I mean, most notoriously this thing is in... Return of the Killer Tomatoes and Street Trash, I believe that was called, with the melting people. So Wesley takes two crates of the beer and a stack of Playboys, important that for later, leaving Quigley to look over three stacks of crate eggs, even though there should only be three eggs in total. Back in space, Charlie asks Ugg why Lee, the second faceless bounty hunter, hasn't chosen a face yet, so Ugg tells him that he needs to find the perfect face. Then it's off back to Earth 
and the Hungry Heifer Burger Joint, the extra Supergirl set, look it up folks, the 1985 Supergirl, not the sort of demi-cool one we have today, where Wesley hits on Megan, and it's Brad to the rescue, however he gets his ass handed to him, and he gets swept up by Megan in the newspaper's truck, somehow, even though she was standing behind Wesley, when he puts Brad in his place, well I guess she teleported then, some awkward dialogue between Megan and Brad about how she went to the same school as him even though she looks much older and it's back to Quigley's shop when Brad's nana takes a Drew Barrymore lookalike from E.T. to get the eggs he promised for the church's Easter egg hunt so she buys all the eggs for 20 bucks. Cut to Megan dropping off Brad at his grandmother's after quizzing him about the crates and the attack they had two years earlier. Him telling her it never happens and it was just the machinations of a teenage boy. Back to Quigley's and the crate eggs are placed next to an electric fire. Just begging to either A. Set the place alight or B. Hatch the little furry buggers. Back to Nana and Cindy played by Lindsay Parker. Where Nana gives Cindy a non-chocolate bunny and a crate egg for helping her. Meanwhile back at the shop quickly finds the eggs have hatched and his dog has been eaten by the crates and worse he's next. Later that night at Megan's house we find out that Cindy is Megan's little sister. She gets tucked into bed and puts her chocolate bunny and crate egg next to the heater. Cut to Brad playing with his old slingshot in a box of his old stuff where he finds a communicator device which looks completely different from the original. But hey, if the town's different, then why isn't the device? Mm. Back to Sydney's room, and it has melted the chocolate bunny, and the crate egg has hatched, due to the fact that the air is so hot, Sydney can barely breathe. So her dad comes in to check on her, just as the crates are going to eat her, and the father stands in it, killing the thing dead. The next morning, and the church is setting up for the Easter egg hunt, and we meet Reverend Fisher, played by Frank Burney. We also meet a new Sheriff Corbin, played by David Yurgen. He's handed the Easter Bunny outfit, and was told Sheriff Marv wore it for 20 years straight. Please tell me it was washed at least once. <laughs> so the old dears at the church place the crate eggs all over the garden just as the kids show up in their Sunday best. So the Reverend chastises the people for not coming every week and it cuts to the old ladies with the kids making Easter bonnets. So one of the kids accidentally smashes the egg and throws it out the window where we see the crate eggs have hatched. Cut to Sheriff Corbin getting attacked by critters as they pile onto his bunny suit and he gets his dick bitten off. As the Reverend ends his sermon, the sheriff, Sheriff's body is thrown through the window and is dead from multiple bite marks. Megan quizzes Brad about the sheriff and the critters, so they decide to go to the old sheriff's Marv's. However, he's having none of it and tells him to kiss his arse and drives off. Finally, the bounty hunter's ship lands and Charlie finds Playboy dropped by Wesley, so Lee transforms into the centerfold staple and all. In some bad 80s transformation effects. Now, this movie is rated 12 or PG-13 if you're American. However, we see breasts and you've got to love the 80s PG-13s. So, off walk Ugg and Lee, played by Roxana Kernahan, into town with Lee half-naked. Again, got to love 80s PG-13s. Cut to Brad 
and Megan discussing what happened to the sheriff's body. Where the almost run over Sal, who tells him she has been attacked by critters at Quigley's shop. So Brad tells the two old ladies to wait in the truck. Sexist much. While he investigates the store alone, because guess he just has to play hero yet again. God, just kill him already. So Quigley's body falls in the door and he gets attacked by critters. Note the damage to the truck door changes between shots multiple times. So they drive off as the critters make their way into town. Cut to Brad's Nana's house and she's getting attacked by a crate who hates the fact she's a vegetarian. Just as Brad and Megan come in to save the day, so Brad runs off and hunts for the communication device, leaving his grandmother and wannabe girlfriend to hold back a angry crate. So the grandmother tells Brad that the communication device is actually on top of the TV and she thinks it is a TV remote. Because that's funny because she's an old woman, isn't it? No, that's just a lame joke. He presses the buttons on it and the door explodes and then walks Ugg and a now fully dressed Lee and they quickly kill the crate. Outside the house, Brad bumps into Charlie and tells him that he's the Binja Hunter too. Although why would the hunters take this useless excuse for a human being who can't do anything right is never discussed. Also, he needs to, quote, boldly go where no man has gone before. Ugh, terrible joke. Meanwhile, back at the paper, Megan's dad fights off a crate. Back in town, Ugg and Lee find dozens of crates hauled up at a bugger joint, so the crates trash the joint gremlin style and are blasted away by Ugg and Lee in some kind of funny scenes. However, some of the jokes here are just bad, such as one gets scalped and another one has bulging eyes when it sees the guns. They manage to somehow escape, roll onto a big ball and bowl down some townsfolk in a really bad bowling gag sound effect and all. Back at the paper, Megan's dad calls for the state troopers before the crates kill the phone lines and continue to run amok. In the paper office, Megan's dad gets a stinger to the neck and is carried off to the truck by Megan, Brad and the grandmother. The townsfolk hold up in church and we see Wesley trying to make a run for it. However, the crates have blocked the one and all road out of town. Ugg and Lee leave the burger joint in pieces as the manager, played by Eddie Dezine, shouts at them about the damage so Lee transforms it transforms into him and hunts down a crate. This is funny because he's a geek, 80s style geek here, not the cool ones we have today. Thick glasses and a lot. It's now nightfall. The town lies empty but trashed as the folk, town folk are still holed up in the church. Charlie finds Lee transforming into Freddy Krueger because I guess the nerd gag was over then. But boy, I would love to have seen Robert England in a cameo in this as Freddy because I guess it's funny. The main reason why New Line Cinema was successful in the first place gets me the joke of it. However, mid-transformation, Charlie pulls out the playboy and is back to sexy female Lee. She hunts down a crate and is ambushed and eaten. Cut to Ugg, Charlie and a townsfolk finding a half-eaten arm and her gun. This causes Ugg to reset his face to nothing. Later that night, and the townsfolk later that night, one of the townsfolk guarding the kids gets killed. So Cindy, looking like a jumbo girl straight of Nightmare on Elm Street, decides to get chased by a critters on a trike. That's tricycle. 
instead of, oh, I don't know, getting off the bike, she decides to cycle with six little critters chasing after her. And Brat is batting away the fur balls with a baseball bat until she falls off and her and Brad get surrounded by crates. What does this final mean? Brad dies. Nope. The old sheriff comes in, all guns are blazing, and kills all the crates. A boo, hiss, and all that jazz. To the crates feasting on the cattle, then it's back to the town where all the crates bunch into one gigantic. The townsfolk still hold up in the church, blame Brad for a ton of the crates, and about lynch him until the old sheriff stops him. So Brad comes up with a suicidal idea of walking him into a burger factory and blowing up sky high. The townsfolk go all quiet when he asks for helpers, so the sheriff volunteers the entire lot of them, and it's a literal pitchfork and torch mob mentality. Note Wesley's jeep has to be pushed out of shot as it is no longer running due to a messed up stunt much later in the movie. So Wesley and Brad drive his jeep to the meat factory in a spotlessly clean jeep. I guess this is before the stunt went awry then, and it's probably the first shot of the movie. I mean, you watch the movie and the jeep is coated in meat and gunk from scene one up to this point. As Brad and Cole prep the meat factory, the rest of the town arm up and loads Megan's truck with TAT handed out by Ugg. Back at the meat factory, Brad and Wesley set the place up with burgers everywhere, piling up uncooked meat and lacing it with TNT. Meanwhile, in the field, the crates are still eating the cattle until they smell the trap and roll into one big pack. The townsfolk fall just behind them, just downwind from the pack. However, just before getting to the trap, the wind changes direction, so Charlie runs off like a coward he is, until one big crate changes their mind and leads them to the trap, saying that the burgers have no bones and be easier and tastier to eat. Oh, and surprise, the leader is Lee, or Ugg, as the movie says, but wait, wasn't Ugg handing out a TNT earlier in the movie? Hmm. Anyway, they blow the trap. However, the critters aren't dead and roll into one huge furball and rolled back into town, causing the townsfolk to scatter, and one unfortunate to be eaten while getting run over by the gigantic furball. Megan and Brad chase after it in the paper's truck and ram it, causing them to crash and trash the truck. So Charlie flies the UFO into the great furball, blowing it and him up, leaving Ugg to transform into Charlie. So the next morning the town has been rebuilt, somehow, and Brad leaves town in the same bus he comes in on. Just like that, Charlie comes out of nowhere with a parachute, what he couldn't show up a lot earlier, mm. and cue some terrible split screen effects with Charlie looking over Ugg Charlie. The UFO flies down and takes Ugg Charlie off into space, leaving Charlie to become the new sheriff of that poor poor town. As the camera pans up, we see a note saying, thanks to the people of Grover's Bend, and it fades to blank. So that was Critters 2. In true tradition to sequels, it sucked ass. Critters had a $2 million budget and it made more than $15 million back. So this movie was given a $5 million budget and it made less than one back. So that speaks for itself. 2 out of 10. On to Critters 3. Leonardo DiCaprio's first movie. Yes, folks, Oscar winner Leonardo DiCaprio stars... In Critters 3, and for me, his acting never gets better. <coughs> <coughs> so, 
So Critters 3, what can I say about this? But it's infamous for being Leonardo DiCaprio's first movie. This and part 4 were filmed at the same time and shared a $10 million budget. That's all I'm going to complain on this movie because it's kind of shite. On with the review, starring Don Keith Oper, Leonardo DiCaprio, Amy Brooks and Francis Bay, directed by Christine Peterson. The movie opens up with a happy little family singing a road song on our way back from holiday at the Grand Canyon. We meet Father Clifford, played by John Calvin, ultra 90s kids and oh my god the fashion, Annie, played by Amy Brooks, and Johnny, played by twins Christian and Joseph Cousins. They have a boat and they have to drive to a rest stop with the car limping all the way. Where we meet super annoying brat Josh, played by new Oscar winner Leonardo DiCaprio. That some say this is the reason why he was passed over so many times for an Oscar. I say it's because he isn't good in anything. I have never liked him in anything. Oh no, wait, to be fair, I kind of liked him in What's Even Gilbert Grape. However, that's it. I hated Wolf of Wall Street. I hated Titanic. And I may be the only person on the planet that hated Inception. Why, I hate you ask? Because DiCaprio always plays the same smug arsehole in every one of his movies. Every single one of them, folks. So he picks on a Annie's little brother. And oh my god, the fashion in this scene is unreal. So Annie comes to Johnny's rescue and her and Josh meet Google eyes at each other and play frisbee. Until Josh throws the frisbee down the gully, so the kids go off looking for the frisbee. And would you know it, Charlie is back once again, played by Don Keith Oper. So Charlie tells the story of Critters 1 and 2 in some terrible filler scenes. And of course DiCaprio doesn't believe it. I mean, I thought Chris Scott, sorry, and I thought Scott Grimes was a wise-ass kid, but boy was I wrong, to a quick point of view. And it heads to the rest stop, yet no one sees it. I mean, come on, it's a giant furball. It is right on Annie's dad's truck. Charlie gives Johnny a crystal and tells him if it goes green, the critters are out near and they have to run for it. DiCaprio, of course, gives Charlie a smart, harsh remark and the line of the movie comes from Charlie to Joss saying, you're not as smart as you think you are, kid. Amen. So Josh gets chewed up by his stepdad after he shows Annie a belt he stole from Charlie. Of course, some more teen angst as Annie's dad chews her up also for being late and she winds up being left at Mr and Mrs Menges as he has to go to work. Typical bratty teenager there. As the camera pans up we see four eggs as Annie's dad drives past a sign. That says Grover's Bend. Cut to the city and a slum ran by Frank, played by Jeffrey Blake. And of course, Frank is a money grubbing arsehole because, after all, it was the early 90s and everyone was. We then meet Rosie, played by Diana Bellamy. As she asks if the lifts are fixed, he says no because it still has a one ton limit. As we notice the lifts, the lift has its buttons exposed and the wiring all hanging out. He says it's not working, but it miraculously works for him by a punch or a kick to the circuitry. Outside the slum, we meet Marsha, played by Catherine Cortez, and her and Frank banter. <coughs> so Clifford comes speeding around the corner and takes out Mario's pickup, played by Jose Luis Van Van de Suela. I think that's how you pronounce that. Forgive me, folks. As we see, the critters have chewed the brakes and the eggs are still not hatched yet, somehow. Hmm. 
So the crates make their way into the basement. Again, nobody sees them. Down in his quote-unquote office, Frank has porn scattered everywhere. There's TVs and there's all sorts of crap lying around. He finds the crate eggshells and, not so subtly, gives the camera the finger. Charming. On the stairwell, Annie asks Marsha if there's any jobs going at the phone company because she doesn't want her daddy driving out all night. And it's on to Mr. and Mrs. Menges. We meet Mrs. Menges, played by Francis Bay, who was in everything from Cratic Head 3 to Arachnophobia to In the Mouth of Badness and finally Twin Peaks. And we meet her husband, Mr. Menges, played by Bill Zuckert. He tells them that the government finds an alien graveyard I guess that's where the crates came from, in the Grand Canyon. Meanwhile, down in the basement, and Frank is talking to his pet rats who have been plaguing the slum. He then has a heated debate about the unlawful emptying of the house via telephone with Josh's stepdad, Briggs, played by William Dennis Hunt. And, and I suppose I should say, his mother Betty is played by Nina Axelrod. So that makes Josh the son of a gold-digging mother, married to a slimy slum while slum landlord. No wonder he did this movie folks. Ugh. After hanging up, Frank hears the crates thinking it's his pet rats and sends him upstairs. So later that night, we find Annie's dad is a train driver. And again, Annie, Annie piles on the guilt, this time using the elderly neighbours as an excuse. He tells her he'll deal with it in the morning. Even later that night, Frank gets eaten by three crates after purring on Rosie's laundry. After Getting more guilt tripping, Annie storms out of the home to give Mr. and Mrs. Menges a check for babysitting them. And she asks Rosie, did she hear some screaming earlier? But they both pass it off as Frank because he's a bit of a perv. And she dumps another load of laundry down the washing chute as a crate does its best Sonic the Hedgehog impression and speeds up the chute only to be knocked back down by Rosie. With DiCaprio in tow, Briggs heads to the slum after talking to one of the crates thinking it was Frank. Cut to Mr. Menges telling yet more backstory to Annie and Johnny as he reads it in the National Enquirer. However, the dates are wrong. It was 1985 and 1988, not 1986 and 1989. Even earlier, Charles got the date wrong, saying it was 1984. While telling Johnny the story, he sees a picture of Charlie and takes out the crystal he was given by him earlier and it glowing green, which means they're in trouble. <laughs> Meanwhile, downstairs, Rosie gets attacked by the crates and yet more gremlins reference as one gets its face burned in bleach, just like one of the gremlins in Gremlins 2 with the acid to the face. As Annie comes to her rescue, she sees Frank's dead body and deals with the crates three stooges style. God, the jokes are even worse and the slapstick is terrible. Finally, Briggs shows up with Josh in tow and he they finally reveals his plan of turning the slum into a mini-mart. How very 90s. Annie drags Rosie upstairs to her dad's house and the two try to explain the crates, but of course the dad doesn't listen, nor does he believe, until Bleach shows up and attacks him and Rosie, leading to some piss-poor bowing joke again, as Annie bowls down these five or so crates with a trash can sound effect at all. Meanwhile, down in the basement, the arsehole Briggs cuts the phone lines just as Mr Menges was on the phone to Grover's Bend, so he also cuts the power, leaving the place in pitch darkness. Marsha comes out of her flat over the flare 
dressed as Ripley from Aliens, and cut to Briggs getting his comeuppance as he breaks into Annie's house and gets eaten by a horde of crates, some of which are transsexual, in yet another Gremlins reference. Marsha beats down the door and finds Briggs' dead body. So, she kills one of them with a fire, and it falls down to the laundry chute, setting the place alight. So Josh and Marsha make their way up to the ninjas and barricade the door. However, the crates try to break in, with one of them doing a yet another Sonic the Hedgehog bash. The survivors arm themselves and find their way into a crawl space. Meanwhile, downstairs, the laundry room is now set fully ablaze. As the final two make their escape, the crates attack, but they make it out as the crates attack trash the room and we get more slapstick as one drinks washing liquids and Bleach puts another one in a cream pie. Funny right, now the shit is just lame. They split up with Josh and Annie checking out the lift shaft, Marsha checking out the roof and the Menjes checking out the skyline which of course is locked. On to Josh confessing he came here with his stepdad to toss them out of their homes. Back to the crates as one farts, because come on, aren't fart jokes funny? Ugh. After eating a boatload of chilli. And Bleach is tossing the cream pies around the place as the rest trash the joint. Meanwhile, in the basement is now fully ablaze. Marsha comes back to tell them she's found a way out, and tells them that it's extremely dangerous as it's a telephone cable. As she makes her way out, she falls on the cable, however, doesn't die, but instead is dangling there as she tries to call for help. So, Annie climbs down the lift shaft because she's a wonder teen and can do anything. She falls after getting scared by a rat. She makes it out of the lift okay, but bumps into a crate that screams at her to attract the others, even though this is never used again. So, she gets attacked by six or so crates as Charlie blows down the door, killing all the crates. However, Charlie's gun jams, so they can make their way into the lift shaft and of course Charlie kicks the panel after making her way out the escape pa panel and it sends him skyrocketing up the shaft. And for comic effect, Rosie falls for Charlie, romance music slow-mo and all, as Marsha is still swinging outside the building. Somehow the crates make up the lift shaft, Bleach attacks the Minjes and DiCaprio kills it with a torch until he gets it in the neck from a stinger, causing Mrs. Menges to kill with a huge meat cleaver. After five minutes of Annie fiddling with Charlie's gun, she gets the bullet out and reloads it with the bullet Josh stole earlier. So Charlie kills the crate he was facing off with and blasts off into space, causing the fire bullet to go off, which I thought was a signal for the other hunters to come down, but nope, guess not. Guess they didn't have a budget for special effects of a spaceship flying around. They make it to the roof, however, no one hears their screams just as Bleach comes out. And I guess teenagers can't do everything in horror movies as Bleach is now alive. Bleach then goes after Johnny, who was standing on the edge of the roof. However, the critter takes too long doing a sonic spin and Charlie saves him by jumping in front of it, falling off the roof. Unfortunately, Johnny goes too and it's down to Annie to catch him, just as his father comes out of nowhere and pulls both of them up. So Charlie calls for help as he's hanging from a flagpole and he falls into Annie's dad's motorhome, yet more piss poor slapstick. The next morning, the firemen clean up, the Menjes are inter interviewed by a newspaper reporter and Josh hits on Annie with the smuggest look possible, straight to camera. It's happy endings all round as Marshall and Cliff make googly eyes together and Josh's mum tells about the money like they're owed to them 
for the relocation. Chow slips away and finds crate eggs. As he's about to destroy them, communicator device goes off in Star Wars style and shines a hologram of Ugg. And Ugg tells him there are the last two crate eggs in the universe and some bullshit about this council sending a pod down for him. As it falls to the ceiling, flashes up to be continued, which leads on to part four. However, I'm going to give this lame-ass movie a 1 out of 10 for terrible jokes, awful slapstick, and the critters look even more like cheap hand puppets. So, on to Critters 4, in space, beating both Hellraiser and Leprechaun there by a good couple of years. <clears throat> on to the final movie, 1992's Critters 4. As I said earlier, this was filmed at the same time as Critters 3, and I think this is where most of the budget went to, starring Don Keith Hooper, Terence Mann, Angela Bassett and Brad Dorf, directed by Rupert Harvey. The movie opens and it pulls a Back to the Future 2 and plays the ending to the previous movie but with little changes here and there. Charlie is told to place the last two crate eggs in the cryopod and he does and it seals both him and the eggs into it and it blasts off into space. In the year 2045, he is floating past the rings of Saturn and gets picked up by a salvaging, salvaging ship. We see empty space because it's Christmas trees on a black backdrop. And the camera zooms into three baseballs being juggled by teenager Ethan, played by Paul Whithorn, as he watches a black and white cowboy movie on TV. <coughs> Cut to the rest of the crew. Rick, played by Andres Hov. Fran, played by Angela Bassett. What are you doing here? Albert, played by Brad Dorf. Again, what are you doing here? And finally, Bernie, played by Eric Pape. I think that's how you pronounce that. <clears throat> they find the cryopod floating in space. However, they can't scan it, so they bring it on board after some terrible Star Trek acting, i.e. shake the camera and bounce something down on your seat. They bring it on board in some terrible tractor beam effects. They find out it's not that salvage, but it belongs to the long-defunct Intergalactic Council. So after digging around in the data banks, they get a call from UG or Council Toretta and offers Rick three times the salvage rates. However, Rick, think, Rick thinks it's worth ten times and blows off the council offer. However, Fran sides up to Rick and decides to take the offer and head to Orion Outpost Space Station. So, with some terrible landing, so with some terrible landing scenes straight out of Star Wars, they land on a space station and the computer tells them to enter and go through the quarantine procedures. This set looks straight out of Stargate SG-1 by the way. And yet another Star Trek reference as Fran talks to the computer, voiced by Martine Beswick. And she quizzes them about the state of the space station and they find it abandoned and almost 60% operational. Is it wrong? I expected when every door was opened, I expected to see a xenomorph or space marine wandering past. <laughs> so Albert hacks into the ship's computers and finds out the ship is, in fact, 85% operational, but a huge parts of the station is off-limits. Also, the station's core is in yellow alert and it's going to blow anytime soon. So the crew decide to use the station's facilities as Rick powers on Fran in the shower until he goes in to answer a towel and gets his ass handed to him, but not before the camera pans up on her body double. So Rick cracks the cryodope. So Rick decides to crack the cryopod open, causing Angela to malfunction somehow, Angela being the ship's computer. So Albert tricks her into opening everything to him. 
cut to some lame jokes about voice activated lifts as Ethan gets stuck in one. Ethan finally comes out of the lift and finds Rick opening the pod. This is where we find out Rick is either A, super bug nuts or suffering from PTSD. As he rams on about, they had all the power and they could have stopped this and yada yada yada. So he smacks Ethan in the face of a fight signature, knocking him out and he strings him up in one of the many chains. I swear it's like something out of Hellraiser. Finally, Rick gets the pod opened and out pops Charlie, which Rick quickly overpowers and attacks. Knocking Charlie on his ass, he looks inside the pod and finds that quick eggs have hatched. Which, why wasn't Charlie eaten? Also, why hatch now, 50 years later? Hmm. So Rick gets attacked by the two crates and these are the worst puppets yet. They look like they're so cheap and muppety puppets. <clears throat> Not to mention the terrible straight out of Nightmare Street Part 4 effects with the critter shoved down Rick's throat. So Charlie tries to shoot the crates, but of course his useless homemade gun falls to pieces. And he has to watch as Rick is eaten from the inside out until he picks up Rick's gun and gives a crate a haircut. In an odd to Critters 2, also to tell the two crates apart. So Charlie helps Ethan down from the chains, tells him he's a bounty hunter from Earth, so the two go off to hunt down the final two crates. The rest of the crew find Rick dead and Ethan missing, so decide to go look for him also. Back to Charlie and Ethan walking through the cheap set of trashed corridors. And I mean trashed, as it looks like the set dresser just threw trash around the place. Again, I keep thinking Aziramorph is going to come out and kill them all dead, ending this piece of shit movie once and for all. Luckily, Ethan finds a lamp coat with an ID on it, useful for later. However, Charlie goes on the hunt, leaving him alone. In yet another alien ripoff, Ethan uses the ID card to get into a lab where he sees dozens of specimens in jars, with some of the creatures looking a lot like a chestbuster. So Charlie crawls out of a hair duck and pulls Ethan in until Ethan kicks a button, causing them to end up in a waste disposal unit, just like in Star Wars. Dear God, did this writer come up with anything original? I mean, really. Ethan tells the computer they aren't rubbish and they're not to be jettisoned into space, but the computer doesn't listen, so Ethan tells them to empty them into space and that stops her, really. BORING! Something please happen. This is 50 minutes into this fucking movie and nothing is happening. So somehow, I don't know, because the movie doesn't fucking explain it, Ethan and Charlie manage to survive getting almost blasted out into space. The Bernie finds them in an air duct and takes them to get quizzed by the crew. And they find out that Charlie thinks it's 1993, not 2045, even though we didn't have and still don't have space travel to this day. He's been floating around space for 53 years in yet another Aliens reference. Ethan finally puts the ID he found earlier into the computer and tells Albert about the laboratory he found. So of course Junkie Bernie, because every henchman was a junkie in the 90s, hell, half a hobs fucking on drugs. In fact, I think this is how the writer, just and director, managed to get this piece of crap movie off because they were high when they wrote it. And I mean high. So anyway, Bernie takes the ID and he goes off to look for some highs. Albert hacks into the computer again and pulls up a video logs of a Dr. McCormick played by Annie Ramsey. Well, they find out she's been genetically experimenting on various creatures that look a lot like facehuggers. However, only much, much cheaper and made out of much worse rubber. As the company wanted a pet monster to clear out planets and get another alien reference. Meanwhile, Bernie goes off to find his drugs 
and finds a room full of tic tacs, oh sorry, drugs, and he helps himself until the crates track him down. So, instead of listening to the crew, using graphics straight out of a Pac-Man game to locate him, he helps himself to yet more drugs and gets quickly eaten by the crates. For some reason, <coughs> mother and alien, <coughs> the computer goes awry, locking them in the corridor, but not until Ethan opens the floor grate and the crew escape. Cut to the crates, reprogram the computer somehow, and they get the computer to go on course with Earth. So the whole ship's going to go to Earth. Hmm. As the cr crew go down another level, to find their ship. Bran finds a bunch of eggs and starts to smashing them, showing the eggs are actually made of chocolate or some sugar-based candy at the very least. Charlie pulls her off, yelling, the eggs take six minutes to hatch. Wait, no, no they don't, they take minutes to hatch. Where the hell did that bit come from? Hmm. The crew make it back to their ship and Albert shows Charlie his prize six shooter with six bullets only. So they prep the ship, only to find a crate aboard, which of course Charlie shoots, wasting four bullets and kills it in front of the ship's computer, causing them to short out, stranding them on the malfunctioning homicidal space station. Charlie, of course, celebrates. Why didn't he just kill him off in part two? This character's fucking terrible. Then gets chastised by the rest of the crew. Meanwhile, back in his cabin, moody teen Ethan throws his calendar, which had a plan of him going back to Earth to find his daddy, and he steals the gun, which only has two bullets left, and runs off. So, of course, the moody teen goes off himself, because teens can do everything in horror films, and hunts down the final crates. Back at the specimen lab, we find... More empty crate eggs and a baby crate in an incubator. Also, the bulb crate is now reprogramming the growth machine as seen in the earlier video log and makes a new crate in seconds. Meanwhile, the company finally show up and we get a good long look at the space station which looks like it's made out of sticky black plastic, paper mache and bits of junk. So Ugg walks out flanked by two non-stormtroopers. This is another nod to aliens with Ugg not being Ugg, but being a bad guy, just like Bishop is actually Mr. Wayland in Aliens 3. So, not Ugg shoots Albert in his stomach, and I thought Albert was actually an android, because why call Albert? <laughs> Guess not. Guess they didn't have effects for that one. After slapping down Fran, Ethan overhears what's going on, and is off to hide from the not Stormtroopers. So he runs around, closing all the doors behind him, sealing the not stormtroopers on deck 4, finally sealing them into the specimen lab with 47 crates to their deaths. Ethan finds the final crate eggs and Angela tells them they have 10 minutes to exit in yet another alien nod. Ethan walks up to not Ugg, juggling the final three eggs, he smashes two and tosses the final one into the air, causing a distraction as Fran pistol whips not Ugg and they make their way into the company ship. However, Ethan faces off against the final bald crate, freezing it with some terrible one-liner, chill out, and then Punt kicks it into pieces. Ethan picks up Albert's glasses. Again, I was expecting Albert to walk up as he was just an android, but nope. And Not Ugg holds a gun to his head as Charlie and him have a Mexican standoff, but not before getting a bullet in the head from Charlie. They escape in the company ship just before the station goes boom as Frank Fran programs the ship to go to Earth, leaving Charlie alone. So of course Charlie presses the big red button, causing the ship to go off course at credits roll. So that was Critters 4. 
a cheap Star Wars and Alien ripoff with no originality and nothing in it fucking happens. Not funny like the other other critters. It's just plain boring. Zero out of ten. So overall, the Critters franchise gets a big fat four out of ten, and thankfully this is long dead. However, I wouldn't put past Hollywood to remake this turkey franchise sometime in the future. So come back next week for the Gullies franchise, and don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Here's Johnny's Pod and email me at Here's Johnny's Reviews at gmail.com. Bye.